Pensions auto-enrolment has been a great success. Government publicity has created inertia, with high sign-up rates to schemes so far. It's created opportunities for advisors across the industry. My guest today argues that the government should build upon the success of pensions auto-enrolment and introduce a similar auto-enrolment scheme for group income protection. His views have sparked an intense debate between those who feel more compulsion is unnecessary and those who feel this would benefit employees, employers and the government. Listen to how auto-enrolment for group income protection might work and how easy it would be to incorporate the choice into pension schemes. Hear how such a development could help alleviate the burden on firms to comply with the Equality Act and provide a business benefit such as assistance with occupational and statutory sick pay. Most importantly, do you agree with what he has to say? Please do leave a comment on the show notes page and share your thoughts. And please share this episode with any friends or colleagues who might have an opinion on this very interesting topic. So let's get to the interview right here on episode 16 of the Marketing Protection and Finance Podcast. Hi, it's Roger Edwards here, and you're listening to the podcast for providers and advisors looking to share business ideas and inspiration in the world of protection and finance. For each episode, you can find the show notes and links to things we talked about at rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash MPAF. So let's get on with the show and prepare to be inspired. So let's get started and I'm delighted to introduce my guest today and he is Paul Avis. Paul is Marketing Director at Canada Life Group Insurance. Before that, he had many marketing roles, including at Legal and General, Unum and Aviva. A keen sportsman, Paul notes his interests in bath rugby, Somerset cricket, Swindon Town football, in addition to diving and skiing. He also says he loves the Caribbean island of St. Lucia and is about to obtain dual citizenship of the island by marriage. So, Paul, welcome to the Empath Podcast. Thanks, Roger, and I'm delighted to be representing Group Insurance on this important topic of um, how we develop our marketplace. Um, and also, thank you very much for the personal plugs, because anyone who knows me will probably say I'm as passionate about all those things as I am about group risk. Yeah, and, and you're the first person that I've had on the podcast who's going to be talking about group protection and group risk. And I have to say, um, over the years, my involvement in the group side of protection has been pretty limited. I've been involved in a couple of research projects as to whether the companies that I was working for at the time should enter that market. And I think the conclusions we came to at the time was that the barriers to entry and, and the profitability and the margins were perhaps not high enough to justify that. So we, I never really got that extra experience of being able to dabble in the group market because we always talked ourselves out of it. Well, I've got to confess, we we cover around about 11 million people as a, uh, an industry. So for us to be so anonymous, obviously, is a cause for concern. So I'm delighted that I get this chance to be on this call today. And what we really want to talk about today, I think, is auto-enrollment for group income protection. Uh, and of course, auto-enrollment has been a big topic over the last few years on the pension side and, and undoubtedly it's opened a lot of doors and created a lot of opportunities for financial advisors and for uh, companies to spread the word about the importance of saving for your retirement. But why do you think we should be looking to 
to to influence government to try and introduce auto enrolment for group income protection. Well, I've been in group risk uh, since 1991 and have a genuine passion for income protection. Um, I think that there's a number of factors that are coming together now which makes it the perfect time to change the dynamics of this marketplace. I personally now have an opportunity at Canada Life to bring together all my knowledge of working in and for insurers, being a health and risk advisor, uh, working with employers on sickness, absence and disability management, disability diversity programs to bring into play a key aim for transformation of the ways that we support sick and disabled people in the UK. In summary, I think that revolution, not evolution, is needed with what the state is doing um, because I think that they're in a significant amount of, of trouble on that aspect. I think that group risk um, is also facing some significant challenges. Uh, you may be aware uh, in April we became the number one provider by premiums and employers, employers and employees. But that's a paradigm shift for us to now have to become a market leader rather than a market follower. So our job now is to transform this marketplace because it's seriously in need of some attention. If I'm honest, I don't think anyone's happy with 67,000 group risk schemes, fewer employer purchases versus the 2 million potential audience that we have. The group life market specifically is struggling. It's got 1.5% less employers buying it. Um, the group income protection market only has 17,193 employers and seems stuck and stagnating. And it's only the group critical illness market that seems to be going from strength to strength. But to put that in context, it's own only 2,655 employers. Point being is that that's a tenth the size of the group income protection and a twentieth the size of the group life market. Why do you think uh, the critical illness element of the group market is growing, albeit from a smaller base, than the, the life and income protection areas? Well, 60% of the group critical illness market is purchased through online benefits platform. I, the employee, is actually probably paying for it at some point or taking a flex fund to pay for it. So it clearly shows that group critical illness is a very popular individual employee benefit, i.e. everyone knows someone who's had heart attack, cancer, stroke. It also benefits single people, unlike death benefits. So it's a more immediate, tangible benefit with people having more experience. So overall, um, why isn't the group risk market growing other than that small percentage of uh, critical illness that you've mentioned already? Well, traditionally, the group risk market has been uh, badly served by bad service, if I'm honest. Um, but that has all changed, not only with the online platforms that are beginning to evolve, but also the service that is available from group insurers is, is in a really good shape. We had um, a look at the 2014 ORC group risk survey with 93% of the 200 advisors that, that review this um, industry rating us as good or excellent. What we found also was that we had a net promoter score of 35% from supporters and a 25% positive net promoter score from non-supporters. So even though people who didn't do business within the last six months would recommend us. So in my view, the service imperative behind group risk is now in place and it's now up to the advisors to distribute our products in a way that is profitable for them, but also looks to grow new to market employers rather than simply growing on the back of automatic enrollment, which only gives you new employees and new premiums. And hence, if I'm honest, that's why I wanted this session. We're running out of things to do as Canada Life, which are good things for our advisors. So our challenge is clearly now to address the market challenge. And probably the most challenging area of this market is group income protection. I believe this product is the most important benefit that any employer will buy on behalf of its employees, but it continues to be undersold or bought by employers. 
I'm actually going to put my head above the parapet a bit and say that without automatic enrolment for income protection, the topic of today's talk, then this product is probably stagnating, probably will decline, and what I don't want to see is insurers such as ourselves move the same schemes around the market at less cost. So whilst my peer insurer group suggests that incentives are the answer, there is a lot of stuff about employer health and well-being, a lot of stuff about state education. I don't think that any of these will get us the new-to-market scheme volumes, new-to-market employers that we need to drive this industry forward. So you're saying that the industry is not aligned about how to address the group income protection issue? That is exactly the purpose of me being here today, Roger, to get the debate going, to gain alignment, as I feel like a lone voice. And if you don't believe me, um, I, I looked at the Swiss Re 2014 Group Watch survey, and there were comments from insurers like respondents remain split on the case for extending the AE model into risk products, and specifically those used to protect income. One insurer said, nope, not interested in AE for income protection. We have a mandatory scheme in SSP. It is a stretch too far at the moment, and the focus should be on incentivizing employers to provide income protection. Another insurer commented, and I quote this directly, in theory it is a good concept but difficult to achieve with simple products meeting a high level of these needs. Employers are looking to reduce costs for group risk products to counter AE pension costs. This would be made worse if legislation were to be introduced for disability benefits. So whilst I acknowledge that the industry is not aligned, I simply do not believe that group income protection incentivization is the answer. Neither is health and well-being awareness or state benefit initiatives. I'm genuinely concerned at the critical state this product is in because we've got clear evidence that we have a problem. No new employers are buying this, but we seem to be doing nothing as an industry to address it. We had 20,400 group schemes in 2004, and yet we're stuck at the 17,200 group schemes in 2014. So in the 10 years, we've lost a significant number of employers. That is not to say the debate hasn't started. On a brighter note, um, compulsion is being discussed in the group, uh, group Watch report by Swiss Re. So one EBC said, yes, it is logical that employers will need to take more responsibility for employees in the future. So clearly, the provision by the individual as part of the AE pensions world is under consideration for the disability world. Another intermediary said, if our industry does become cost-effective and ready for any potential AE of risk benefits, we need the technology and common data standards in place. Otherwise, we're stifling our growth and potentials. Some insurers have embraced technology and are reaping the benefits. And this is clearly the service point. Class, which is our online service, has 6% of the entire group risk scheme on it, showing that good service can mean that small, medium enterprises can be run profitably. Also, um, some good news, Swiss Re has taken this mantle on and is seeking to build a business case for an automatic enrollment model where there's a replacement ratio of, say, 50% payable for two years and looking at what seemed to be an old-school idea but actually could gain traction, some form of waiver of contribution for the automatic enrollment pension. Also, some further good news, ABI also has uh, picked up this mantle and is talking of a collective insurance model. So whilst there is a tide of people who are not addressing the small number of employers that have got group income protection, I think that we are finding more and more this debate, this dialogue will happen, and it's imperative that our industry aligns to deliver some form of cohesive argument to government. There's obviously an issue with the group market then, Paul. So 
So talk us through what those problems are and how we can address them, how we can effectively grow that group market. Well, I would say that the problem is actually more widespread. If you look at the individual income protection sales for this year, they declined to 90,000, and it is not all doom and gloom in the group market. We've had an increase um, in the income protection membership by around about 75,000 people to 2 million plus, but that is almost on the back of automatic enrollment. There's been a 3.8% increase, um, premiums growing from uh, 563 to 598 million, but that is very much on the back of ageing and also the impact that low interest rates have had. So it's a mixed message, but certainly if you look at the individual sales, there's clearly a concern. It's, it's all about the number of employers um, that are buying the benefit, and that is the clear challenge. So what's happened? When I attended the ABI Simple Product Workshop in mid-2013, looking at developing a simple income replacement product, we sat down as a group and reflected on whether that initiative would help sales, and I don't think simple products will work. Have a good products we offer the individual, they still have to be sold. And then it struck me, so in 2001, when stakeholder pensions were launched and no one bought them, the AE for pension legislation came around up to 2012 to address the pension funding issue. And I think the same model could be applied here. If we were successful in implementing simple products and no one bought them, perhaps the government would start by thinking about compulsion. I'm not uh, dismissing simple products. I think they're clearly a massively important in initiative for this industry to do. But I don't think they can easily be launched with current state benefit complexity and a taxation situation. So universal credit coming out further evidences the complexity of the state offering. So whilst that model exists, evidence of the challenges facing selling individual protection direct to employees was found in the ABI working group to be the best way forward. Our issue was that one of the group on the ABI working party had already done a worksite marketing selling individual protection initiative and had invested heavily in technology, advertising and sales for this, and yet they had mothballed the program due to a lack of employer and employee interest. Now, some of that could be recessionary, period of austerity, wage inflation not happening as inflation was happening. But the simple fact was, despite doing a great job to grow the market through the worksite, this simply didn't happen. So launching simple products promoted through the workplace probably isn't the answer to sell more protection products, income protection specifically. And we need the government to focus on the GIP for AE opportunity, but this is going to be a challenge. Having said that, you probably saw in the papers last year, 2013, December, the DWP said they were interested in a discussion about what GIP providers could do to support UK sickness, absence, and disability, and the door was open, but only partially. You probably also saw, more recently, the Corporate Advisor article in August, which stated that Stephen Timms, probably the, the, the Labour Work Minister, was interested in the discussion and more understanding of what the Group Income Protection Shore is. The question is, who is going to pick up this mantle? Why do you think the DWP was interested in the conversation? And what challenges do you face getting this initiative off the ground? And, and how do you plan to overcome them to make them work? I think I'm, I'm quite interested in the, this concept of c compulsion, because when I, was, uh, when I was working at Royal London, albeit that I wasn't on the group side, every time we looked at the group market, the issue of compulsion came up. And there was almost a universal resistance against 
introducing compulsory protection benefits. Now, I don't know whether that was just a social thing or whether they thought that pensions was just about as far as you go, but there's obviously a little bit of interest in the conversation now. So, so take, take us through that thinking. Well, in simple terms, the state, and this is not a political comment, is whatever colour the state is, has a problem. You're probably aware that the work capability is proving to be so massively unpopular it's had 1.5 million people complaining by the Citizens Advice Bureau. In excess of 700,000 people awaiting assessment, many without incomes. There's been an issue with the disability living allowance replacing the personal independence payment, with terminally ill people actually getting their checks after death. And universal credit by this time was meant to have around about uh, a million, million and a half people on it, and there's only five to 10,000 people on it. That it plan launch of the Health at Work Advisory Assessment Service has been scaled back by 30%. So you can see that whichever way we cut it, the government is not delivering on the state disability promise. With 250,000 new ESA applicants annually and a further 80,000 self-employed, I doubt if they've ever quantified the true cost of sickness, absence and disability in all its forms. But whatever that figure is, it's an incredibly large figure, not just the £13 billion payments that are made to ESA RAC, but also all the ancillary benefits which could total in excess of £28 billion a year. So challenge one, why do you think the DWP is interested in conversation, is getting to recognise that the state has a big disability bill second only to the pensions bill and that the initiatives they're undertaking are not actually helping them to reduce it. And a further important challenge is to recognise the increasing need of individuals to protect their incomes, bear in mind that 1% of the workforce is relying on state benefit. The UK population is getting older, so this is going to increase the need. There are currently 10.3 million people aged over 65, representing an 80% increase over six decades since 1951. So on the face of it, medical science is great, but the fact is that ageing in the workforce will continue. Around about two-thirds of employees surveyed from our research believe they'll work past the age of 65, which is double since October 2012, when only 35% would have uh, worked past the traditional retirement age. So you can see this is a problem already, and it's going to be compounded by the extent of ageing in the workplace. So there is a challenge. It will never happen to me. And that's an illusion based on the current ESA annual submissions and the increasing likelihood inherent within an ageing workforce. The biggest challenge we face is getting the employer engaged. A state ag campaign with their AE for pensions would be Nirvana. And likely, uh, if, if we were to get AE for JIP, that's what we should be aiming for. And do you think that there is an appetite from government to introduce a further compulsory scheme in the same way as they did auto enrolment for pensions? Is that another vote winner to suggest that the public have to invest more of their hard-earned cash into this time into a protection policy? Well, the Dutch model is the one I'd look to, but refine it for UK and specifically expecting every employer to pay 5-6% salary simply is not feasible. But what I do like about the Dutch model is it contains a clearly mandated rehab programme provided by the employer with an infrastructure that is supported by a private sector and state partnership. So unlike the Dutch model, I would not go straight for 100% compulsion, but I would wait until the next AE pension contribution increases made. So if the government, say for example, increases the pension contribution, say 3 to 5%, I would say to every employee, you have a choice. Yes, you can simply pay the 5% AE pension contribution, or alternatively, you could pay half or 1% of the salary to some form of disability sickness product. Now that is a really important point because 
that would give the employer an empowered choice about the level of sickness absence benefit they provide rather than expect their employees to rely on the state. In addition, I would pay, make it payable for two years. And the reason I say two years is it's an appropriate time to allow an individual to settle down not only with their disability but to rework through their finances. In addition to the core, say 50% two-year payment, could be 40%, automatic enrollment pension and national insurance contributions could be protected, adding to the core salary continuance income replacement amounts. This will put the employee in a cost-free environment to the employer and also protect the pension and the national insurance contribution needed to fund it, the basic state pension. So, in summary, Roger, my view is that when the next pension increase happens, a 40-50% benefit paid for two years at a cost of half to one percent of salary with pension, AE contributions and national insurance contributions covered could be the answer to all of our issues. That seems like a reasonable workable model and you've customised it from elsewhere but why would we do it and what's in it for the different stakeholders? Well the initial benefit for the government and for the state is it will make any increases to employer pension contributions more palatable. They will not like any further pension contributions but the current 3% is not enough and an increase has to come because high opt-in rates or high opt-out rates in SME happen, they will actually say no everyone's now got to contribute. By giving the employer the choice in how this increase is spent, either pension only or pension plus disability, the employer may not feel the increase is being imposed on them more that they have a choice which engages, engages them. It also promotes self-reliance, supporting the state benefit strategy by putting more responsibility on the individual and the employer. So if automatic enrollment for JIP was implemented, the first beneficiary would be the state, where they could have a potential saving of up to £56 billion immediately. Of course, this saving would be as a result of no state benefits having to be paid for the first two years of sickness or disability, but only if legislation changes happen to ensure that no state benefits are paid to an employee while insurance payment is being paid. This is a significant change and will take time to accomplish. This is also reliant on the state encouraging organisations to take up the disability benefit, and as I said previously, the advertisement that they did for the pension take-up rate was massively successful, and that's what we should be aiming for, state support of a private sector, public sector partnership to manage disability professionals. So if the government promoted this automatic enrolment two-year payment, then in effect they would have a significant saving to the taxpayer, and that's a great message. I think it's quite interesting, isn't it, that the government did this advertising around auto-enrolment for pensions. One of the things that's always been going on in the protection market is this clamour for more advertising from almost like from a collective across the industry. And indeed, a couple of years ago, there was an initiative by a financial advisor called Tom Bagri. He tried to get the industry to club together to force the industry, if you like, to create a generic protection advertising campaign. And of course, that failed to materialise because actually the industry couldn't agree how much money each would pay and how they would each benefit from it. Arguably what you're saying here is that if the government was to undertake that advertising of the need for group income protection then it would have just as positive an effect on growth in that market. So I, I can see the industry obviously benefiting from that collaboration with the government. So carry, carry on telling us about the other benefits of uh, going in this direction.
direction. The first thing to say is that whatever they save in the first two years would continue. Um, Dutch model has shown a 60% reduction in people going on state benefits, and that could save further billions of pounds. Our claim statistics back this with around about 50% of set claimants ceasing claiming by year three. They retire, return to work, or die. So as a business case for government, you can see that, yeah, first two years, the more people they promote into this scheme, the better it will be for them financially. As fewer people going on state benefits because of the rehabilitation process, but it's the employers who need to purchase or need to engage with it to make a success. But what about employers? Surely they are key here. Agree 100%. A for JIP benefits employers who ultimately are the key purchase if the state offers the pension plus disability alternative. Employers get nothing out of AE pensions and it's diluted a key benefit differentiator. So where is the business benefit for employers when employees take their pension pots with them when they leave? Employers have to pay statutory sick pay, occupational sick pay, employer liability insurance and have to comply with the Equality Act obligations. So you can see that all of these business needs can be served because income protection and rehabilitation is the immediate answer to support these requirements. So we've talked about the government and what they get out of it. We've talked about the employer and what they get out of it. But another important stakeholder, but not necessarily the decision maker, is of course the employee. So, so what's in it for them? Automatic enrolment for income protection gives individuals a buffer, time to rework their lives and finances before having to rely on whatever the state would provide for them. If you think about it, I'm now sick, there's an illusion the state will provide me and I will never get sick or disabled, but then when it does, so what you need is a two-year period as a buffer between employment and ill health retirement or employment and state benefits. And in that two-year period, it will afford you the time to A, rework your finances, B, probably more important, get used to your change, physical or mental circumstances. Employees at the moment and individuals are blissfully unaware of the paucity of state benefits and how hard they are to qualify for. Now, whilst I'm the least paternalistic person from, from the state to nanny state, I'm also believing that unless the employer and the state work together with the insurance industry, individuals do not buy this benefit it needs to be sold to them or it needs to be put in place in a way that makes it really easy for them to understand how much they'll get, who from, how long for, and an informed employer making the purchase on behalf of the employee instead of, say, a full pension decision makes perfect sense. I agree with that sentiment. People are definitely unaware of the paucity of state benefits. I mean, a lot of protection marketing is always about making people aware of how little they'll get from the state if they had to rely upon the state. And of course, the the group of people we haven't talked about in this, uh, this debate so far are financial advisors. How would advisors work with automatic enrolment for, for GIP? Take us through uh, that part of the thinking. Well, I'd, I'd think that the um, employee benefits world has been shaken to its core uh, with the removal of the Pension Commission, the Charging Cap, the Trail Commission, um, RDR, and of course the demise of DB pension and administration work. So I think that anything that allows them to consult specifically in the health-related areas should be welcomed. And the benefit of AA for JIP is actually JIP market expansion. The Dutch model showed how many employers go beyond the minimum benefit and hence need advice. So with more schemes available, advisors can increase their skills and knowledge base by for the first time really investing in this area. Key benefit of this growth for us is that fresh eyes actively work in a vibrant employee benefits arena, but one that's focused on health and well-being will create competition, but also new service ideas and innovation, and we badly need that. Ultimately, this will all lead to a reduced sickness absence cost for employers in the state. And it's a weird one, Roger, because the UK always thinks itself as a world leader in financial service provision. But the JIP market has not been greatly served because everyone assumes the state benefit 
is going to provide for them and that restricts its growth. So as the state benefits unravel, the opportunity for JIP growth may be there, but nothing like the scale of AE for JIP. Now due to the complexity of employee needs, the advisor market is best placed should an organization wish to go beyond the underpin-based simple model to two years half salary. The diversity of employer profiles and legacy of obligations is best served by the advisor working through these. And also, there's a benefit for individual protection sales and income protection because, of course, people want to top up and extend beyond the two years. And the last link in the, the value chain here, I suppose, Paul, is the, the insurance companies. How, how are they going to benefit from auto-enrolment for GIP? Well, the first thing to say is that, as I stated earlier, UK PLC does not have a vibrant occupational health market, and one of our key challenges is to further invest in rehabilitation. We have in-house medically trained rehabilitation consultants, but there is simply not enough really good quality experienced people to go around for all insurers. We need more dedicated business-aware rehab consultants that have the right combination of skills to get people back to work. So that's the first benefit. We would also have to agree a, a quality standard for disability products as per the simple products. So in an era of opt-in funding for GIP, case by case, insurers can compete on price and value, on payment terms and special features, but there has to be a minimum acceptable level of product sophistication, which would enable the government to support the initiative. The work has started to provide a simple income replacement product by the, undertaken by the ABI and GRID. What is clear, though, is it will be incredibly hard to deliver a simple income replacement product in the current legislative and regulatory frame. So the government does want an underpin. They must simplify state benefits and change the tax situation. And I think as an industry, we need to embrace that underpin to whatever we do. But we simply struggle to do it at the moment. Also, we are subject as an insurer to risk um, scrutiny through Solvency 2, and we need to undertake some form of risk diversification. So we, we've got to have a, a, a risk profile which is diverse, whether it be by geography, by employer size or employer segment. If automatic enrollment for JIP was offered to the whole of the group risk market, we would no doubt have new entrants coming in, but probably more importantly, we would probably have a greater risk appetite to enable us to quote on all risks, not just the ones that we currently do. A further advantage, and this is a really important one for the, the bad reputation that, that many financial services companies have after PPI, is that if the government said this is the right thing to do, it would give them and us a real boost in the attempt to get sickness, absence, disability really on the consumer's agenda, confident in the knowledge that this product works unlike PPI. This has been a little departure from the normal format of the Empath podcast. Normally on the Empath podcast we talk about an existing product line or an existing marketing campaign but what you've been talking about today is still a concept that might or may not happen in the future and, and quite a lot of things have to fall into place before we would get auto-enrollment on group income protection. So what's the one big idea that you would like the listeners of the Empath podcast to take away from what you've been saying about the uh, concept today, Paul? Well, I agree with everything you say, um, and I had a simple ambition in, in coming on the podcast. That is to get all stakeholders thinking and talking the same way. We, we cannot be diverse in our views here. We all need to agree and work together in a similar collaborative approach to the Dutch model and to AE pension provision. I don't think 
any single set of people can do this for disability by starting a true debate on how the state and private sector can work together, bear in mind they have made, it the, made the offer to us to do that, a solution can be achieved as Holland has proved. And of course, the ambition is A for GIP should be probable rather than possible, but we need the state to engage to debate it properly. The state needs to aim to provide clarity to the individual and to think revolution, not evolution. It's a quite a challenge. Simply put, there needs to be simplification of who pays what, to whom, when and how, how long for, when someone becomes disabled. And with the current malaise that it, state benefits is the complexity of taxation of state benefits versus insurance product, I don't think anyone can achieve that. So, for the protection industry, advisors, insurers, it's clear that we must work together and be aligned. Underpinning this, we need a simple extended sick pay product that has a full rehabilitation program and beyond this, insurers compete on payment periods, benefits amounts, third-party services, etc., rather than purely cost. Advisors will be needed by employers who want to do more than a simple product purchase and have the business case to invest in group risk staffing appropriate to the increased demand. We would have to comply with many aspects, build a vocational rehabilitation framework that would work within a simple product world and also engage with the employer. They are the most important stakeholders. They've got to want to buy this product. And the question I would have is why wouldn't they? They would have a simple choice whether to pay 5% for the pension or 4% for the pension and a half to 1% for a disability product. And if their business benefits outweigh purely funding of pensions, I believe they do, then they would probably opt for it. We've already proven with AE for pensions that it is possible for an employer to encourage employees to be part of a wider agenda for self-provision, and I think we need to do the same for disability. And my worry is that if we don't adopt this model, then why wouldn't we? And more importantly, what's the alternative to it? And if, if we don't get AE for GIP, I genuinely do worry for the future, not only of group income protection, but also individual income protection as well, because these things are not selling to employers or individuals at this moment. Fascinating concept, Paul, and I would have to support you on, on the concern you have about the future of the income protection market, both individual and group. And, and what you've got here is a very interesting concept. The difficulty is you've got so many different stakeholders. We've got the state, we've got the insurance companies, we've got the advisor, we've got the employer, and we've got the employees. But I think the idea in concept is well worth pursuing. And what I would like like the listeners of the Empath podcast to do today, having listened to this, is to give you directly their feedback on what you've said. And now you can either do that by logging onto the um, Empath podcast page, that's uh, rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash empath, and leave a comment or, and we'll get round to this, Paul will leave his contact details at the end of the show, and indeed I'll publish Paul's contact details in the show notes for the Empath podcast. But I would encourage you to listen to what Paul said about this concept of auto-enrolment for group income protection. Get in touch and maybe together as an industry we can progress this debate with all of those stakeholders that I've mentioned. Paul, thank you for a fascinating insight into a potential future for uh, group income protection. Before we go, I always like to finish the Empath podcast with a quick-fire round of business questions. Are you happy to stay for a couple more minutes to do that? More than happy, Roger. If there was one thing that you could change about the financial services industry, perhaps by waving that huge proverbial magic wand, what would it be? Well, this is a simple one. More focus on group risk. We're massive, covering 11 million people. 
and yet we are not in many advisors preferred growth strategy there is plenty of opportunity to grow this market and that should be the focus of advisors post RDR post pension capping and so forth what's the one business model or product or campaign that's caught your attention in the last year even if it was from a competitor tell us what it was and what you liked about it i think probably i'll be uh, not alone in this but i still think the meerkats um, which sells a financial product with a really clever message because it evolves like a soap opera and, and through refreshing keeps you engaged with the brand and i think probably as i look at my industry, we need a kind of silly bang ad on JIP versus state benefits. That would catch the eye too, but I, I know has not been done. Tell us about an app or a gadget that's made a huge difference to your life and or your business. Twitter is massively underused in our industry, I believe. We here spend a massive time resource researching all aspects of employee health and well-being and need more followers because we want to act as one source of information on this topic. Um, in addition, YouTube faces the same challenge. We, we've got toolkits to help advisors new to group risk understand it, and it's a great resource, but much like Twitter, probably underused as advisors struggle with the volume of social media. I think the message is if you find some quality providers, stick with them because they should be constantly refreshing daily or monthly the, the communication materials they have. Uh, and finally, Paul, what's the best business book you've ever read? Tell us why you like it so much and what you took from it. Well, start with a non-business book. Um, I read a book called Any Human Heart by William Boyd that illustrates that you really have to step outside your world to truly understand it. But if we focus on the business book, Jack Welch, straight from the gut, uh, the GE chairman showed me that a can-do attitude when aligned with ambition is the key to success. I think that's a culture I've tried to imbibe in group risk at Candle Life. And whilst we get to purchase a branded balloon as part of our marketing strategy, we encourage innovation and say to people there are no stupid ideas. Of course, there are stupid ideas, but we tend to discount them. And, and that was what I learned from straight from the gut. Start the innovation, creativity and thinking differently. And let's see where you end up and discount the rubbish ones on the way. And before we go, it's very important, given all you've said today, Paul, and the, the need for the industry to have a look at the concepts that you've been discussing, that everybody knows where to contact you. So tell us, how can people connect with you, whether it's on Twitter or LinkedIn? In Google Plus and of course your, your corporate website. The best way to contact me is definitely by email and my email is paul.avis at canadalife.co.uk I always respond to emails so more than happy to take any comments on the automatic enrollment for income protection debate discussion because if we ever get as far as sitting in front of government I want to have all the queries that they're going to throw at me work through in my head and, and hopefully can share that great knowledge with, with the rest of the industry if they want to align behind, behind this idea. Thank you, Paul, for talking to me today. Fascinating concept. Sounds like you're the champion for this. And let's hope the industry and eventually the government and the employers and the employees get behind you on this. Let me wish you every success and I hope to catch up with you again soon. Thank you, Roger. Thanks for listening to the Marketing Protection and Finance Podcast, also known as the Empath Podcast. Do please look at the show notes at rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash empath for links to the apps and books and topics we discussed. If you enjoyed the show, I'd be grateful if you would leave a review on iTunes. Simply visit rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash iTunes and leave a comment. If you are a provider, advisor or journalist and you have a product, campaign or business model that you want to talk about, do please get in touch. 
I'd be delighted to have you as a guest on the Empath Podcast. And before we go, just to remind you that nothing that my guests and I talked about on the show is intended to be financial advice of any kind. It's just our thoughts and opinions, okay? Thank you.